God has a starting point with us. And uh, theologians have a technical term for this starting point. It's called prevenient grace. And um, the way to, to remember this is just think of the, the, the prefix of that word, pre. It's the grace that comes before, that, that God's grace and goodness is present and active in our lives and in our world before we've ever done anything. And we sometimes forget about God's prevenient grace because we tend to think of God's grace as the after grace. Um, that we do things that are wrong, and then God is gracious in forgiving us. And uh, that is important, and you'll hear about that probably more in church. And, uh, and then we forget about God's starting point is a point of grace with us, that God loves before we've done anything, good or bad. The reality is, though, is that we, we do mess up, But God wants to get back to his original starting point. See, God's uh, intention, God's will, is that God wants to restore us and wants to restore everything we've messed up. We, though, have to cooperate with God because we can easily stand in the way or not cooperate with we're going to look at a few places in the book of Acts that kind of show us a little bit about this cooperation and what it might look like. Acts is a, a really important book as we are in the Easter season. I'll say, incidentally, Easter is not just last Sunday, but it continues for 50 days. So we have a season of Easter where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And Acts is a very important book because it's what the apostles did, what the first believers did after Jesus had been raised from the dead, um, also after he had ascended. But it's, but it's their reflection and their activity based on the after Easter time. So I just want to read to you um, the opening of the book of Acts. This is just the first few verses. Uh, in the first book, Theophilus, uh, Theophilus is who the book is written to, he wrote Luke, uh, Luke wrote Luke and then wrote Acts and addressed them both to this person named Theophilus. I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over the course of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Acts chapter 1 is about the disciples waiting for something to happen. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit, though they don't quite know what that will be about. Acts chapter 2 is about the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's the day of Pentecost, and the disciples hear the sound of a, a violent wind and what looked like fire coming down and, and resting on them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they all spoke in different languages um, so that the crowds who were in Jerusalem for the festival could actually hear in their own languages the wonders of God. 
and we'll hear about Pentecost after the season of Easter. That's the, once the season of Easter is done, you get the day of Pentecost and our celebration of that. Now, on that day, Peter gave a sermon. And in that sermon, Peter confronts the crowd with who Jesus really is and what they had done to Jesus. And Peter is really specific in his sermon. And I want you to try to imagine what it was like to hear Peter's speech. So imagine being a Jewish person in Jerusalem, listening to Peter, and you're there for the religious festival of Pentecost. Okay? That also means that you would have been in Jerusalem about 50 days earlier for Passover with the great crowd of people it means that you were likely in the crowd yelling crucify when Jesus was presented to you. And now you're back again for another Jewish festival. So you've got to listen to Peter's speech as though you were one of these people who had asked for Jesus' death. That you are directly a participant in killing Jesus. And so then Peter stands up and he, in his speech, declares that Jesus is the true Messiah and is risen. And you asked for him to be killed as a criminal. Now imagine you hear Peter's speech about he is risen and you believe Peter. You just helped kill God's Messiah. And now the risen Jesus confronts you through the words spoken by Peter. You're in trouble. You're in big trouble. You helped kill the Messiah, and he's risen. You you hear that? You're in trouble. Like, we have trouble getting into that mindset as Christians because we think, oh, we're not in trouble because God is gracious and God is wonderful and and Jesus loves us. This I I know. The Bible tells me so. Right? But the mindset actually is this one who you killed, he's risen. Like, death couldn't defeat him. You couldn't defeat him. You are now going to be in trouble. Look what you've done. And so the crowd hears Peter, and we hear that they were cut to the heart, is the the language that's used. And they ask, what then should we do? Because we're in trouble. And this is is where we get the message that, that gets lost on us so much, because we've heard it frequently in church. Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, and your sins will be forgiven. This is huge. These people had not heard this before. Repent. We've got to get our our head around that word. Um, In this instance, this means truly taking it back. So in other words, that if, if you could go back to the time when you were in the crowd with everyone, you now would not yell crucify. 
You would have yelled, no, stop, he's the Messiah, he's our Lord. Don't let it happen. And you really wouldn't have cared about the consequences to you anymore. And he says, be baptized in the name of Jesus, which, which really here, it means be claimed by Jesus. Be one who belongs to Jesus. And see, when they give themselves to being in and, and with the one that they betrayed, what will happen is they will experience forgiveness from that one. They will actually receive the love that was always there, that prevenient grace. They will receive the love that they helped kill, that they may have thought they were killing off, but they will be restored with God through this Jesus. That's pretty huge. We forget how big it is. Now, this was for the people in the crowd that day. But it's nice to imagine that, but it's actually not us. We weren't there. We didn't cry crucify, even though we might be able to imagine ourselves doing it. We didn't actually do it. Well, if we jump ahead to Acts chapter 10, we get this awesome story about the first Gentiles hearing the good news, the first non-Jewish people hearing this good news. And um, so the specific and up to this point uh, Jewish story of Jesus actually starts to get into its more full reach beyond the Jewish people. It's not just forgiveness for killing the Messiah that people start to receive. They start to receive forgiveness for all sin for everyone. So in Acts chapter 10, there's a man named Cornelius who's described as God-fearing. He's not Jewish. He's a Gentile man, but he believes in the Jewish God, and he does what he can to try to follow, uh, follow that God. And he gets a vision, as the story tells us, at three in the afternoon. Uh, an angel appears to him and tells him to send men to a town called Joppa and send for a man named Simon Peter. That's actually pretty bizarre. Um, to get a vision like that in the middle of the afternoon, go and send some people. But Cornelius has the confidence to actually send the people. I'm not sure when I reflect on this passage, I'm not sure I would do that if I, you know, I would think I'm probably going crazy rather than, oh, I'll actually do what this vision is telling me. Um, but he obviously had a pretty vivid vision that compelled him to do this very sort of practical thing, go and send for this, this man, Simon Peter. Now, about noon the next day, Peter is up on the roof of his house, uh, in the house that he's staying in, and he's praying, and God gives him a vision, and that vision shows him all kinds of food that Jewish people would consider unclean and were not allowed to eat. And the vision tells Peter it's okay to eat it, just like Gentiles would. And as he's having the vision, the men arrive downstairs and start asking for Peter. And I want to read to you a bit of what happens after that. So this is Acts chapter 10, starting at verse 19. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Uh, I mean, again, this is pretty amazing. Peter is thinking about this other vision he has, and the Spirit says to him, uh, There's three men downstairs. You don't know it, but there's three men downstairs, and you need to go with them. And so lo and behold, he's going to go down. Um, so Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They answered, Cornelius, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. 
The next day he got up and went with them, and some of the believers from Joppa accompanied him. The following day they came to Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. On Peter's arrival, Cornelius met him, and falling at his feet, worshipped him. So Cornelius meets Peter and starts worshipping Peter. Peter made him get up, saying, Stand up, I am only a mortal. I'm only a mortal, not I'm only immortal, sorry. I'm only a mortal. And as he was talking with him, he went in and found that many had assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know that it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Now, may I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius replied, four days ago at this very hour, at three o'clock, I was praying in my house when suddenly a man in dazzling clothes stood before me. He said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying at the home of Simon the Tanner by the sea. Therefore, I sent for you immediately, and you've been kind enough to come. So now all of us are here in the presence of God to listen to all that the Lord has commanded you to say. And then Peter starts to talk. And Peter starts by saying, you know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ? He is Lord of all. That's actually pretty massive to say that. Because up until this point, it's been, he's the Messiah of Israel. People on the day of Pentecost were Jewish, and they heard, and they believed, and there's this great movement going on in Judaism, but now Peter comes to speak with Gentiles, and he says, you, you know the message he sent to the people of Israel, peace, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, so you've heard about what's been going on. He's the Lord of all, not just of us, of all. That message spread throughout Judea, Peter continues, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good things and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses to all that he did, both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Notice he doesn't say you. He says they put him to death. But God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to those who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. You cannot get more overly all-encompassing than that. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You see what happened to the message there? It went from Peter on the day of Pentecost saying to the people, you killed the Messiah, you're in trouble, he forgives you. To all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Huge. Jesus, he does, he does forgive those who killed him. That's, that's big enough. And Peter was in that group, wasn't he? He denied him three times and allowed Jesus to go to the cross. And, and we might see that and say, well, that's not us, really. But wait, 
he's risen and is the one chosen by God to be the judge of everyone, he says. And what does the judge do? He forgives. Everyone is acceptable to Jesus. The one who willingly forgives those who killed him is the judge of all the living and the dead, and he will forgive them too. The one given all power to forgive anyone for anything is the one who chose to use that power to forgive those who called for his crucifixion, and it's the same one who has the power to forgive us, to forgive you. When you believe in him, when you give yourself to him, you receive restoration from God. You experience his forgiving power. I think about how big this is because sometimes we just completely walk right by it. He was willing to welcome back people who wanted him dead. That's the same power at work in your life. God's people are not just limited to the people in the crowd that day or to the people Jesus met while he walked on earth. You are also one of God's children, and no matter what you have done or left undone, Jesus will always be willing to take you back to him. Jesus, uh, Peter links this to, to baptism. When we celebrate a baptism, it is really the, the church claiming that whoever is baptized is one of God's children that he will have this relationship with that child. Baptism is about us celebrating the grace that God pours out without you doing anything at all, because it's all from God. And the thing is, we don't always know that grace or experience that grace or receive that, because throughout our life, we put up barriers to it and reject it. We don't cooperate with it. So each time we choose to hurt another person or to hurt ourselves, what we do is we cut ourselves off from God's goodness that he intends for us. But when we profess our faith in and allegiance to Jesus, those barriers that we put up get taken down. That is when we open ourselves up to receiving the love that, God, that has always been there from God. Jesus is the one with the power and the willingness to forgive us. He's the one with the power to remove the wall that we have placed between us and God. Now, many in our church and in our tradition are baptized as infants. And this is a celebration of God's love for the child, pure and simple. And then later, when they're older, they may claim faith for themselves. Uh, some churches will call that confirmation. Uh, it's a good word. Uh, it's because it's a time when someone confirms and claims for themselves the grace given by God to them through their life. Uh, we usually call that act a profession of faith. It doesn't have to be done just once. It can be done in a public way many times. You can also do it privately to do a profession of faith. You could do it in your heart. You could do it on Sunday morning. You can do it today. Sometimes we will formalize it a bit more, especially when it's the first time you're doing that. A profession of faith, particularly a public profession of faith, is that moment when you take a step toward God in Jesus, where you declare to others that Jesus is your Savior and Lord. And so our baptism celebrates God's claim on us, even before we know it. 
and God stepping toward us in prevenient grace through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what's going on in baptism. Our profession of faith is about us claiming with the help of the Spirit that the grace of God has been offered to us in Jesus. It's saying yes to what has already been given. Now, some people come, uh, often in the Presbyterian Church, you'll find, okay, there's an infant baptism, then later they'll confirm or they will profess their faith. But some people come to all of this as an adult. They won't have been baptized as, as a child, and all of it is brand new to them. They might profess their faith for the first time publicly at the moment that they are baptized into life in Christ. Some people come to this gradually, baptized as an infant or a child and then slowly learning more, um, having a few experiences of the Spirit of God at work. That's what happened to me. I was baptized as an infant and gradually over my life raised in the faith. Um, but no matter how it comes, we need to not forget that this grace is totally earth-shattering. It's like nothing else you know. Sometimes we, we think that the, the stories of, of radical conversion, of, of somebody uh, being baptized as an adult, of having their life completely turned around with Jesus, we, we hear those stories and we think, oh, wow, that is amazing. And they are amazing stories. But we also need to learn to tell our stories if we're, if we're like me. I mean, I know my story better. We need to learn to hear our own story also as God's radical and incredible grace at work in our lives. Just, just think about this. Like I had, I had parents who knew God's grace. I, I have parents who know God's grace. Like, like it, it, think about this. I, I know others who have been baptized as adults who then look at their life and say, well, but wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great to just grow up with that kind of love? with parents who believed it and, and know it? Wouldn't it be great to have grandparents who believed it and knew it? Wouldn't it be great if I could be that kind of parent for my child? Where you're just close to it all the time, and as you grow up, when, when you're around it, you, you hear about it every week. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be great? The problem with that is we often miss it. We miss how great it is, but that, to me, somehow seems far better. We've got to forget about this idea that there has to be this radical conversion. Another way to think about it is is to think about what our life would be like if it wasn't there. See, sometimes when the grace of God has always been there in our lives, we think, well, it's not really life-changing because, because this has been present in my life. Like, my life hasn't changed. It's just been part of my life. So then think about it this way. If it wasn't there, it would be life-ruining. If you're like me, you need to imagine that there is this barrier between you and God. Imagine what that would be like. If you don't feel that barrier, imagine what it would be like if it was there. Imagine not having Jesus in your life. 
I mean, that is big. That is big. Proclaiming Christ, believing in him, is central to who I am and who some of you are. Believing in him means you claim the grace given to you as a child of God. For many of you that has been there, that's been passed on from your parents. You are made worthy of being right with God. And it's actually what God wants for you. When you have that, it means that all barriers, all sins, every time you've turned your back on God or messed life up, in turning to Jesus, you then experience all of that being repaired. You actually experience it when you take the step of faith and admit that you are, in fact, that you want to give your life over to him and believe in him to renew that again. Some call this the peace that passes understanding that you receive. We have to remember the magnitude of this grace to find a way to to connect with the magnitude of this grace, the magnitude of us receiving Christ and what it actually does for us. And if we do that, uh, we still have to ask, and what then? If we go back to Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people believed that day. They turned to Jesus and they were saved. And then in verse 42 of Acts 2, it says what happened to those people. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So if you grasp the magnitude of what it means for God to love you and what it means to, to, to receive this grace that's always been there, to have those barriers removed, the what then is devotion. And you'll notice in this verse, it's devotion to God, but it plays itself out primarily in terms of worship. It describes their first gatherings, what they did, and it's what we, we should seek to do week in and week out. So it's about paying attention to the teaching, but, it, but that's not just about listening to a sermon. So they devoted themselves to the teaching and fellowship. So it's also about being together. So look around. There's others here. It's about welcoming others in. It's about allowing people to be themselves because God allows us to be ourselves. It's about taking time after the gathering to talk to somebody, particularly someone who's new and maybe doesn't know anybody who's here. So devotion to the fellowship as well, to care about each other. But it isn't enough to just say, well, it's just about listening to the teaching and just about community. It's also about sharing a common meal with one another at the Lord's table. It's something we did last week on Easter Sunday. Communion together with Jesus as our true host of that sacred meal. But it's not just about that either. It's about prayer. It's about praying together, praying for each other, about listening to God in prayer, about communicating with God, about taking time for prayer. We gather for all of these things the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. The what then, if we can grasp the magnitude of this grace in God, the what then is devotion. And I used to think that the what then wasn't particularly flashy. The flashy are these nice big stories about incredible conversions and God doing these amazing things. And I even used to think that the big thing really is God's grace and then us receiving it. 
And then the devotion and the commitment is kind of that hard work that I don't really want to do. And some days that feels true. But if you read through the book of Acts, you actually find that the commitment and the devotion to those things and to God and to one another actually becomes the fuel for the continuing fire of the Holy Spirit. And in a lot of ways, we really miss that or we are missing that. The real thing at the, the heart of the book of Acts is actually the activity of the Holy Spirit. It's called, the book is called the Acts of the Apostles, and I often will say, I think it actually should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's the activity of the Holy Spirit. And the primary thing that the Holy Spirit is doing in Acts is bringing the word about Jesus to new hearts who need to know of the power of this God who forgives so deeply and abundantly by a crucified and risen Savior. The, act of, the acts of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit throughout that book is trying to bring the word about Jesus to new hearts who have not heard about this incredible grace. And believe it or not, our devotion and commitment to the teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers that ends up being the fuel for the Holy Spirit to do that. I, I heard about somebody who, um, in another congregation, not in this congregation, who was wanting to support uh, mission work. And what they wanted to support was really the spreading of the word of God in places that needed to hear about it. And their whole concept was, for people in maybe parts of Asia or Africa who just have not heard about Jesus. And when I heard about this, I wasn't talking to the person directly, but the person I was talking to, I said, well, they actually need, if they, wanted, they were wanting to give financial support to something like that, I said, well, they should give in their offering to their church. Because one of the main places where we need to, where we need to help connect this message to real people to make a difference in their lives, I would say the biggest areas that that needs attention are North America and Western Europe. So if you attend a church in Canada and you want to see the word of God spread and you want to support that, then support your local church. Or start doing it. Because it's the people around us in our lives who don't know about Jesus and this amazing grace. The church is exploding in Africa and in Asia and South America. I mean, that's, that's where the church is growing. The church is in a major decline in Europe and in North America. If we want to see people know about this, this God who loves so deeply, then, then we're the ones. And it begins with this devotion to these things. The teaching breaking of bread, prayers, fellowship. It's not that we have to struggle on in devotion and commitment, hoping, oh, maybe this is going to help my life get better and better until maybe I find the right prayer or do the right study or I listen to enough sermons that, ah, yeah, now I've got my life together. No. It's that we continue to commit and be devoted to God because that is the fuel that powers God's work through us to reach others who are in great need of this amazing message of hope. 
We need to not lose touch with the gospel because we've so often made the gospel about that first thing that I said. We've made the gospel about, well, it's going to help me. I'm going to feel good about my life or whatever it is. We've made it into self-help. But it's so far beyond. It's not close to that. The original gospel message, what, what happened with those disciples? The very first thing they do is start figuring out, well, who, can, who else can we tell about this? The gospel is just news. It's good news. It's to be shared. I'm not saying that is just super easy to go out there and share the gospel and good news. So take a look then at the commitment that we're supposed to make. Let's not lose touch with the gospel and what is supposed to be happening, but that is why we need to stay devoted and committed. Because sharing the gospel out of the world is not always easy, and so we need the teaching, the fellowship, the prayers, and communion. We need those so that we do not lose our first love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that those who we touch, those that God sends us out to, so that they can know what we also know. And that is a God who loves before we even know. A God who sent his son so that in the midst of the mess that we have made, we can still receive grace and restoration. Let us stay devoted to God, to Jesus, the Holy Spirit so that his grace can be known. Amen.